We've been going through the seven letters to the churches. We've come to church in Thyatira. Revelation chapter 2, we begin reading our scripture with verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know your works, and love, and service, and faith, and endurance, and that your works and the last to be more than the first. Remember with church at Ephesus, it said they were to do the first works. Here it says their last works, as it were, were even more than the first ones. So he had something great to say about them. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her space to repent of her immorality, but she didn't repent. Look, I will cast her into a bed, and them who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the reins and the hearts. And I will give to every one of you according to your works." But to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this teaching, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you no other burden, but that which you have already hold, hold fast till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works to the end to him I will give power over the nations. And he shall rule with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter, they shall be broken in shivers, even as I receive from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thyatira was considered a, a town of little importance, especially in comparison with some of the others like Pergamos that we talked about last Sunday. It's interesting too, it was the smallest of the seven towns to which the seven letters are written and perhaps the least important of them all, but it got the longest letter <laughs> of all of them. That's kind of interesting. Pliny the Elder, if you studied history, you probably read about him. He mentioned Thyatira and other unimportant towns. 
so it was not considered to be a great town. An interesting thing about Thyatira is that it was a sentinel town, had a military outpost. I understand this had been true for several centuries. You see, it was on the road that went to Pergamum, the capital, which we studied last Sunday. And it was there in Thyatira that they had this military outpost so that if they were invaded from the east, it could fight a delaying action in order to give Pergamum more time to prepare, to be ready for the war. So for many years, there was this group of the military to fight this delaying action if needed when they might be invaded. And yet, as I said, it's a small town, generally considered not that important. From Pergamum, it's actually very much to the east. Now, one of the things about Thyatira is that there were some very important roads that came through there. It's a little bit like buying a house. What do they say is the most important thing when you buy a house? You've heard it, location. What's the second most important thing? Location. What's the third? Location. <laughs> well, this was a strategically located town, so they had this military outpost. We've had military outposts and bases in Sacramento area, have we not? And sometimes certain kind of problems come along with that. So we can identify a little bit with, with that situation. So with these roads coming, this important location, what I'm leading up to saying is it was very important commercially. In fact, there was one of the main roads that went from there to Byzantium, later called Constantinople, now called Istanbul in Turkey. And these roads brought in all kinds of commerce, all kinds of business. And so it was a great commercial city in that respect, even though it was not that large nor considered that important. What other person in the Bible does it say came from Thyatira that we've studied about before? You remember in, in Acts chapter 16? Her name was Lydia, wasn't it? She was a businesswoman. She dealt with purple. Purple was a very expensive dye. And of course they would dye clothes that color. She would dealt with this very expensive commodity in a business sense. Near Thyatira and at Thyatira, they grew a plant from which purple dye could be extracted. It's called murex. And so they were ready to get this very valuable color from this plant that drew, grew right there. It was also taken from a shellfish and evidently they didn't have those there, but they could also get it elsewhere. 
Two of the most important things in business in Thyatira were dye and also wool. Coming in from the east, from Phrygia, there would be a lot of shepherds that took care of sheep, and so the wool industry and the dyeing industry were two very important things. But there were other industries as well. There was work in bronze, work in copper, weavers, other things that people did that were very, very important. Working in leather like the Apostle Paul did. And so it became a prosperous town, very important commercially, and wealthy, many of the people became. This led to them forming what today we might call unions. They were called guilds, associations of people working in various different kind of professions, whether it be wool or dye or whatever it might be. And they would have their meetings. And at their meetings, they would have a libation to one of the pagan gods, a drink that they'd pour out. And at the end of the meal, they'd do it again, another libation. And as part of their feast, as they celebrated together and worked together in the guilds, they would also go ahead and sacrifice an animal or more animals to their false gods. And they'd give the false god a token amount of the animal, and then they would eat up the rest. So it became a religious thing as well as a business matter. And if you were going to get ahead in business, you better participate in things like this. Now that presented a problem, didn't it, for Christians? Back in the Jerusalem conference, they forbade for the Gentiles to be eating things offered to idols. And often with the activities that developed at these guild meetings and feasts, they'd commit much immorality. And so it was not only offering to the idols, but it was fornication immorality that would be involved, a big part of it. Now in Acts 15, as I mentioned earlier, they wrote a letter to the Gentiles and said, you are not to eat things offered to idols, you are not to commit fornication, idol, um, immorality, and a couple other things. So you can see if you were a Christian and you lived in Thyatira, you'd have a big problem. Commerce was very important, business was very important. They had these meetings, and if you didn't participate in these things, you could be blackballed. It could affect your pocketbook. It could hurt your finances. So a Christian was faced with a real problem. Shall I join in with these things or not? And there was a lady, she called herself a prophetess. She told them these things were okay. She probably said an idol is nothing, go ahead. You can participate in these things in your heart. You don't have to go along with this. Immorality, after all, we're 
under grace and God forgives, so you can go along with these. You don't want to touch the almighty dollar, as it were. This is just something that you do and, and God forgives you. It's okay. Well, she gave him bad advice, didn't she? Her teaching was wrong. And we come to this as we look at the letter itself. But we find the people here in very much a situation like people are in today. We pointed out that whereas there was much idolatry there, that idolatry is like greed, it's like covetousness. And we are surrounded with that today, if not maybe some idols, but not a whole bunch of them like they had back then. Now they did have some temples, not as important as many. They had a temple to Apollo and one to Artemis. And they had a local god to Remus. And then they had a sibyl, an oracle, called Sambathi. And people would go there to get guidance. They want to make a decision how they should live and what they should do. And they'd go and pay to get the advice of this sibyl, the Sambathi, instead of trusting in the true God and asking him, which is what Christians should do. So we can see a lot of similarities between what the situation was in this town of Thyatira and the situation in which we find ourselves today in Sacramento or Placerville or wherever we may live. And I believe that the message that is given here to Thyatira is also therefore a message given to us. Well, it says whoever has an ear, doesn't it? Let him listen, let him hear. So now let's look at the actual letter, <clears throat> bearing all these things in mind, their, their situation and the similarity to our own situations. We saw in verse 18, it begins this way. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these things says who? The Son of God, who has his eyes like to a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. We find in the letters to the other churches references made back to chapter one of Revelation especially to the introductory appearance of Jesus to John. This is extremely important. I've talked about it before, and I'm happy to point out some things here. Notice it's the Son of God who says this. And going back to chapter 1, the latter part of verse 14 talks about the one who appeared to John, his eyes were as a flame of fire. Reading on the next verse, and his feet like to fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. So here in verse 18 of chapter 2, it's referring back to that, very clearly and obviously. But there are people who insist that the one who appeared to John in chapter 1 was not Jesus. And the reason they insist on that is because they do not believe that Jesus is really Almighty God. And so rather than bow to the teaching of Scripture here, they say that that is not Jesus who appears in chapter 1. But notice in this reference back to chapter 1 and verse 18, 
what is he called? The Son of God. <laughs> Who's the Son of God? Jesus, very clearly in the scripture. He's God's Son. Therefore, the one who appears in chapter 1 is Jesus. It's not some other creature. It's not just Almighty God either. It's Jesus himself. And so what does that prove? It proves that Jesus is divine. Jesus is God with us, as one of his names says, Emmanuel. God with us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son, there's God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. One God in these three ways. And by the way, the Holy Spirit, it seemed good to him too that the Jerusalem Council made the decision it did, Acts 15, 28. It wasn't just a church decision. They shouldn't commit immorality and that they shouldn't do these other things. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. It was a Holy Spirit decision as well and therefore binding, is it not? That's important to keep in mind. This proves that the one who appeared in chapter 1 is Jesus, who very clearly is seen to be God. It mentioned, too, in chapter 1 that he had been alive and he died and he rose again. That says he's God. That says it's Jesus. And there's another argument from verse 13 of that chapter in Daniel 7:13. Having said that, back to chapter 2, verse 19. I know your works. And as I pointed out recently, God does know their works. He knows our works. He knows how we're serving him. He knows how we're living. And love. That's a part of the Christian life. In fact, it tells us in 1 John that God is love. It says that twice. And service. They served God. There's some good things here he's saying about them. As we serve God, God knows about that. He knows our works. He knows our love. He knows our service. He remembers every good thing that you do in his name. Even a cup of cold water given in the name of a disciple is remembered by him. And faith. That's important, isn't it? We're saved when we trust in God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that he died for us. We know he rose from the dead. We sang about that. He conquered death and he is king. What beautiful words we sang. And so we have faith. We believe these things. We trust in him. And your endurance. Yes, it's important to continue on. In fact, we're to hold fast, aren't we? And your works. And the last to be more than the first, which I already mentioned. Notwithstanding, notice first he said some good things about him. If you have something you want to share with somebody, perhaps to help them change in some way, it's a good thing to approach it first from the positive. Point out good things about that person, things that they do. So he said, notwithstanding, I have a few things against you. Here's a big thing. Because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, implying, of course, she's a false prophetess, 
to teach and to seduce my servants to commit immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Who is Jezebel? We don't know for sure who this Jezebel was, but some lady within the Christian fellowship. It was a threat coming from within the church, not from without. In the Old Testament, we find the Jezebel that was a wife of King Ahab. Now, King Ahab was a particularly bad king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sidon up north. And they worshiped Baal and Ashtaroth, his partner. And she brought that worship into Israel, the northern kingdom. She was teaching them bad things. And she's the one who, after Elijah called down the fire from heaven and burned up the sacrifice, he executed the prophets of Baal and prophets. And she was furious, and she wanted to kill him, so he escaped. <laughs> Long journey down to Beersheba to get away from her. That was the Jezebel that this person is likened to. Her name was probably not Jezebel that it's talking about here, but she's like that Jezebel, teaching wrong, thinking she's doing right, and yet she's doing very bad things. She's telling them to commit immorality. She's telling them to eat things offered to idols. And if it indeed has to do with these guilds and their feasts, you can see what a hole this would have and what an appeal may be to some people to go ahead and do these things. Notice it goes on to say that he gave her space to repent. She had a chance to change. Repent means a change of mind, a change in action, doing something different, eliminating the bad and putting in its place the good. He gave her, God gave her a chance to change, but she didn't. I think, too, of what it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, about giving people a chance to repent and come to Jesus, delaying the coming of Jesus. It appears that he's not coming for a while because God's giving people an opportunity to change, to leave their sins and to come to him, to acknowledge what they've done wrong and to turn from them and put their faith and trust in Jesus, have a new life, a promise of forgiveness, and a place in heaven. What a wonderful, wonderful promise these things are. Well, he gave her a chance to make that change, and she didn't do it. I think of a verse in Proverbs, chapter 29, verse 1, about the person that hardens his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, that without remedy. So she was hardening her stance. She wouldn't take the opportunity, and so she would be destroyed. Many people are confronted with the same kind of decision and opportunity to change today as she was then. Unlike her, people do change, and they accept Christ. But like her, some persist 
in unbelief and rebellion against the Lord, and that's a very sad thing. And we need to pray for people, don't we? Jesus said the way is broad that leads to destruction. The way is narrow that leads to life. And only a few find that. So there is going to be judgment upon her. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the reins and the hearts. Reins, that's an old word for what, you know? Kidneys. <laughs> Kidneys were considered the seat of our emotions. The heart, on the other side, on the other hand, is considered the seat of the intellect, of the mind. God searches all our emotions and our thinkings, and he gives everyone according to its, his works, as it says there in the last part of verse 23. But there were, to these good ones, these ones who weren't being seduced, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this teaching, and have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I'll put on you no other burden. Now that's an important statement. At least it's a scary statement, is it not? The depths of Satan. In 1 Corinthians 2.10, it talks about the deep things of God. Now that's challenging. That's something to think about. What are the deep things of God? Perhaps some are revealed through his creation. Much is revealed in the Bible. But the deep things of God. But what a contrast. The deep things of Satan. A scary thought. But that which you have already, hold fast, verse 25, until I come. Don't let loose. Keep your faith, even though it may be increasingly difficult in our society to do so, especially if we're bombarded with negative propaganda, such as Jezebel was putting out there. We need to hold on, not let loose. Keep on in faith. Keep on in service. Keep on in fellowship. Keep on in love. Keep on in living for the Lord Jesus, and for God Almighty. But notice, till I come, Jesus is coming back. Should we be ready? Yes. When is he coming? We don't know. He says, no man knows the day or the hour. But the point is, therefore, be ready all the time. <laughs> all the time. It could be right away. It could be still a ways off. We don't know. But the point is, be ready for his coming. Be trusting Jesus. Be living for Jesus, therefore. So then he goes on in verse 26. He who overcomes and keeps my works to the end. Again, the holding on idea. You keep on. You don't abandon the Lord Jesus. To him I will give power over the nations. That's quite a promise, isn't it? And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter. They shall be broken in shivers, even as I received of my father. 
Now that's a reference back to Psalm 2. You may know Psalm 1, but if you don't know Psalm 2, I'd suggest you study that psalm. You see this is referring back to that. It's a messianic psalm, a psalm in which the kingship of Jesus, which we sang about, is highlighted. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, so on. A psalm of victory. We see in Psalm 2 that the Messiah is the king and the victor. And I will give him the morning star. Now here on your list, I believe I put down Revelation 22:16. That verse tells us that Jesus is the morning star. So I believe this is basically saying to him who listens, who obeys, who overcomes, I will give him Jesus. And of course we know when we leave, yes, we're going to be in the very presence and fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God is saying it to them and I believe to us. And so we take what is appropriate for our own lives <coughs> and for our own church to better serve and hold fast and live for Jesus. I hope these are words of encouragement that God will use to help us so live and so persist. May we have a prayer of closing and of dedication. Thank you, Lord, for this message to Thyatira. Thank you, it's not just for them, but it's for us. Wherever it may apply to our church and to us as individuals, we pray that we would be submissive to you in all things. We thank you that you love us. You love us enough to help us to walk closer to you. We would commit our ways now to you, Lord. May we love you. May we live for you. May we serve you. Now to him who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, may he make us complete in every good work to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ we pray, and for his glory we ask. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you, and God willing, see you all and others next Sunday.